Well, fellowship. When I say the word fellowship, what do you think of? Fellowship in today's lingo could mean anything from just getting together with friends. We could have pictures of laughter and people hanging out together and having a good time. Uh, we could, maybe you think of Bible study. Maybe you think of church here on Sunday morning. It's really become a word that's used to describe Christians just hanging out, right? You, you get together with unbelieving friends, and you're just getting together with them. But you get together with Christian friends, and then you're hanging out, or then you're having fellowship, right? doesn't matter what you're doing, but if it's with Christian friends, then there's fellowship. And, and the thing with this, uh, this definition is it could include everything from uh, Bible study together to watching the Super Bowl together. It could include every single activity under the sun as long as it's with Christians. And the problem here is that what often passes for fellowship is really just a social get-together. It's really just people having a good time together. And this is not what the New Testament had in mind when it mentions fellowship. We, largely as a church today, in this country have lost the biblical understanding of what fellowship is. And so this morning, we're going to reorient ourselves. We're going to refocus ourselves on what the Scriptures have to say about fellowship. Because this is one of the things that makes the church different from the world, is that we are a group of people who love one another and fellowship with one another. We're not just people that have the same membership card and fill out the same application and thus we get access to the same place. We're not just people that have common interests in one thing, but we are people that deeply love one another. And this is a a huge testimony to the watching world. We are the most connected and yet the most lonely generation. There are devices in everyone's pockets and purses in which they are able to connect to the world, connect to more people quicker than ever before. And yet there are more people who sit at home on those devices and are lonely. And the church should be a radically different place, a place in which relationships are real, a place in which uh, relationships are deep, a place in which there's true and lasting love that goes deeper than just mere preferences in a common sports team or preferences in uh, common activities. But there is a deep, resounding love for Christ. And so if we as a church here at Foothill are going to uh, mirror Christ to the watching world, then we need to get fellowship right. We must get it right. So I invite you, if you're not there already, to turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Philippians. To the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's a Bible in the pew rack or underneath your seat, and you can turn to page 1174. You'll find the book of Philippians. Let me begin by just reading our passage for us. We're looking at verses Uh, 1 through verse 8 of chapter 1, and I'm reading this morning from the English Standard Version. Paul begins in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now this morning, we are going to look at fellowship as it is modeled between Paul and the Philippians. As we do that, we're going to see four ways to appreciate the beauty of gospel fellowship. Four ways to appreciate the beauty of gospel fellowship that's shared among each other here at Foothill Bible Church. So let's begin looking at the first way that we can appreciate this gospel fellowship. The first is that we must be humbled by our shared status. We must be humbled by our shared status. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. Again, he says, he starts out, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, as you can see, this verse begins with both the author of the book as well as the recipients of the letter and his greeting to them. And we see the author here is Paul. Paul, the great first century missionary who brought the gospel to the known world at the time. He was used by God to break into Gentile territory and bring the gospel to places that had never been before. And the book of Acts records his missionary journeys, three of which are recorded there. And uh, it was during his second missionary journey that he planted the church in Philippi. I have a map to show you, which looks much smaller now that it's up there. Um, (laughs) At least you can kind of see the difference between land and sea, right? I mean, that's probably about all you can see. But um, but he started uh, up in Antioch, which is over on the right side of the screen, went up to the top part of the screen, came down through Corinth, and then shot back to Jerusalem. And that was his route he took. Now, I don't know if you can see the words Asia and Bithynia and Galatia. So that's kind of Asia Minor. He uh, first went through that area on a second missionary journey to encourage those churches there. He had already planted those churches on his first missionary journey, and he was wanting to go back through to encourage them and to make sure that they were firm in the faith. He describes in Acts 16 that the Lord prevented him from going into Asia. He then begins to go north, and the Lord prevents him from going north into Bithynia. And it's there that he has the dream of the Macedonian man who come and stands before him and asks him to come to Macedonia to bring the gospel there. And it's there then that they head for the coast over to Troas, take a boat over to Macedonia, and eventually land at Philippi, which is the northernmost town uh, on the, uh, in the middle of the screen there. Philippi was the first church planted in Macedonia into what is now common or modern-day Europe. 
He'd planted many churches in Asia, but this is the first one in Europe. Now, it says Paul and Timothy. Timothy was uh, joined by Paul only a few weeks before he landed in Philippi. In his journey through the churches of Galatia, one of the churches there was Lystra. And when he's there, he hears about this young man named Timothy who has a Greek Gentile father and a Jewish believing mother and who he himself, Timothy, had come to know Jesus Christ and uh, had uh, a promising, uh, was a promising young man. And so Paul takes him in as his uh, protege and brings him along his missionary travels. I'm only sure that uh, Timothy's mother was glad to see an older man who loved Jesus take her son Timothy under his wing because he himself did not have a believing father. And so, and in fact, we even have in the book of Philippians in chapter 2, Paul describes Timothy as a son with a father who has served me in the gospel. And so they, uh, they had like a father-son relationship as Timothy came along with Paul in his missionary journeys. Well, this letter is written 10 years after the founding of the church in Philippi. And Paul is in prison in Rome, which is off the map here, over onto the, into Italy. And he's writing to this fledgling congregation that is only 10 years old. Timothy is with him in Rome, which is why his name is mentioned here. But uh, he's not imprisoned with Rome. And in fact, Paul wants to send Timothy to the Philippians. And so Paul is the author. He's accompanied by Timothy. Now notice how he addresses himself. How does he introduce himself to these people that he hasn't seen in 10 years? He calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. He comes humbly before the Philippians. He does not come flaunting his apostleship. He does not come in flaunting his authority, but he comes in saying that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, translations are notorious for getting this word wrong. And in fact, many of you probably have a footnote next to the word servants or bond servants uh, in your translation. The word is doulos or douloi for plural. And it simply means slaves. That's it. Slaves. It's harsh word, yes, but it accurately communicates what Paul had in mind when he was identifying himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. What he's communicating and what his first century audience would have totally understood is that they were completely surrendered to Jesus Christ. They did not have any rights of their own. They were owned by Jesus, and Paul wanted to make that clear. We do not own our lives. We do not dictate our lives. We do not own the agenda for our lives. Jesus owns the agenda for my life and for Timothy's life, and we are coming to you as those slaves. Slavery was so dominant in the first century that to read the word doulos in their letter, they would have uh, instantly known what that meant. And yet here Paul and Timothy are modeling for us the true attitude of a believer in Christ Jesus. They're happily and humbly modeling this. This should be the attitude of every Christian. Every Christian should be able to say, I am owned by Jesus Christ. I do not call the shots in my life. Jesus calls the shots in my life. 1 Corinthians 6 
says clearly that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Christian, that's you this morning. You were bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. Luke 17, Jesus teaches us that we are simply unworthy slaves, that we don't have anything to count to our name, anything that we can, we can boast in. Acts 4, a remarkable prayer in which the believers there, in their prayer to God, designate themselves as slaves to Him. This is a title that every Christian should take to themselves. I'm a slave of Christ. And so, this is a, a foundational reality of our fellowship here as believers in Christ, that each one of us are owned by Jesus Christ. We have a shared status of slave. We have a shared status of surrendered rights unto Jesus Christ. We do not own our lives. Jesus owns our lives. We belong to Christ, our loving master. Pastor Tim Keller has said this. He says, most people want Jesus as a consultant rather than a king. Most people want Jesus as a consultant rather than a king. And I think that is a convicting and yet accurate assessment. People want Jesus there to give them good advice, to direct them when life is hard, to give them a little uh, boost when things are tough. But then once things are going well, they say, thanks, Jesus, I'm done with your services. I got my life. I know where I'm going, and I know what I want. Folks, that's not the gospel, and that's not the Christian life. The Christian life laid out in the New Testament is one that is completely surrendered, in which we have laid down our lives, which we, we have gone to the cross, we have denied ourselves, and we have followed after Christ wholeheartedly. This is a wholehearted commitment unto Christ. And if we are going to experience true and deep and lasting fellowship with one another, we cannot be a bunch of individuals who are coming together thinking that we own our lives and that we set the direction for our lives. We must begin by recognizing that our lives are not our own. But notice next how he addresses the people in Philippi. He calls them saints. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And so he is addressing the church there at Philippi along with the overseers and deacons. The word overseer is simply another term in the New Testament for elder and then he mentions the deacons, two offices in the leadership of the church in which we receive specific instructions on their qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. And it's interesting, this is the first and only letter in which Paul actually addresses the leadership of the church along with the body of the church. It's a, it's a unique pairing here, and I think it's instructive for us. Because what Paul doesn't say is he doesn't, he doesn't put the overseers and the deacons, the elders and the deacons, over the saints in some sort of way, saying that they have a, a first priority or they have a higher status. He says that they are with, they're to all the saints, with the overseers and deacons. You see, the leadership of the church are simply called out to lead. They are simply called out to serve a specific role, but they are first and foremost saints along with every one of us. See, true biblical leadership begins with understanding that Christ is the chief shepherd and that we are all his sheep. And that those who are called out unto leadership are called to serve, but they are still and only saints along with the rest of the body of Christ. And this is what Paul is communicating here. What is a saint? 
A saint is not some venerated Christian. A saint is not someone who's in God's hall of fame. A saint is not someone who's done some extra good things for God. They're not super Christians. A saint is every believer in Christ. A saint, the the word saint simply means holy one. Those who are set apart unto God. If you have been saved by Christ, you have been set apart unto God. You are a holy one in the service of God. You have the elevated and unique and heavenly status of holy. Believer, rejoice in that this morning. Be humbled by that. We all recognize our sinfulness. We all recognize that we are not holy in our daily practical lives. We all sense our sin. And yet, it is because we are in Christ Jesus that we are holy. Notice that he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Not all the saints who have made themselves holy. To all the saints who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. To all the saints who have been united to their Savior. You are holy and I am writing to you. At this Philippian church, there were people such as the converted jailer. You remember that story. Paul and Silas are in prison and he asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? And he believes and his whole household believes. Lydia, the first convert of Philippi, she's out at the place of prayer by the riverside. Paul speaks the gospel to her and the Lord opens her heart and her and her family believe. These are the people that were the saints, the holy ones in Philippi. Friends, we must be humbled by this reality as well, that we are both saint and sinner, that we are both holy and slaves unto God. And if we're going to experience and appreciate the fellowship that God has for us here, we must first be humbled by the shared status that each one of us have. All of us share the same status. Well, Paul says to them, grace, and, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A standard greeting to them uh, with words that are theologically loaded about the grace found in the gospel, the peace that we have with God that only come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These blessings cannot come from any other place. You cannot find peace in anything else on this earth. You cannot find grace for your tormented soul in any other place but in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is is wishing that greeting upon the Philippians. Well, let's look at the second way that we can appreciate gospel fellowship. The first was to be humbled by our shared status. The second is to be thankful for our shared mission. Be thankful for our shared mission. And we see this uh, as Paul opens the letter here in verses 3 through 5. After addressing the people, he begins with thanksgiving. And even as our brother Bernie read from Colossians this morning, you know this is a common trait of Paul. He often will open up his letters with great thanksgiving for the people he's writing to. The only letter that's an exception is the book of Galatians, and that was an urgent uh, letter in which he was um, stepping in and was uh, quite shocked at the heresy that they had adopted, and so he came in uh, full force out of the chute um, and did not have a point of thanksgiving. I believe it's still there. It's just more uh, an undercurrent than a direct reference. But here he begins with thanksgiving. He's overflowing with thanksgiving for the Philippians. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, 
making my prayer with joy. Paul says that he thanks God whenever he remembers these dear people. He thinks back to that congregation, that group of believers there in Philippi, and he bursts into praise, bursts into thanksgiving. And this prayer was not a labor for them. He wasn't going, all right, I better pray for them, those, those people. He, he says, no, I, I do this with joy. I do this with joy. As Paul is there in house arrest in Rome, he thinks back to those people and it brings a smile to his face. He remembers those dear Philippians. Do you see the beautiful relationship and fellowship that they had? That the, the sweetness of that fellowship, the sweetness of the relationship, that even in the most dire of circumstances, that relationship brings joy to Paul. And Paul had much to be thankful for for them. Notice his reason in verse 5. Why does he have this joy? Why does he give thanks? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now the word that's translated partnership or participation is the Greek word koinonia, which is the word for fellowship that is translated often fellowship in the New Testament. And in the first century, this word uh, had even a, a commercial overtones to it. It, it was commonly understood uh, in more of a business sense. So if you had John and Joe who went together to buy a boat for their business, you could say that they went into fellowship with one another to buy this boat. They went into this partnership. And so fellowship means a, a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. A self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. John and Joe sacrificed for their business. They put money aside in order to buy this boat for their fishing business. So, let's then apply this to Christian fellowship. What is Christian fellowship? Christian fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. Self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. There's definitely a warmth that's involved, an affection that's involved, as we will see, Fundamentally, it's a, it's a commitment to a shared vision of the gospel. And so when Paul gives thanks because the Philippians uh, of their fellowship in the gospel, he's thanking God that these brothers and sisters in Christ, from the moment of their conversion until the time that he's writing, that they rolled up their sleeves and they got involved in the work of the gospel. They did not waste a moment, but they jumped right in. Now, how did they do this? What did their fellowship, what did their participation, what did their self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel look like? Well, they continued to share Christ in Philippi. That church grew. They, they, they shared Christ. They evangelized. And people around them, their friends and family members, came to know Jesus. The church continued to grow. Chapter 1, verse 19 says that they were praying for him. They were involved in prayer for their brother who was in chains in Rome. It says in chapter 1, verses 29 through 30, that they also suffered for the gospel's sake. They received ridicule. They saw Paul receive ridicule, and no doubt they also received that as they continued to meet together as believers in Jesus. We also have record of them sending money several times to Paul, sending material uh, help to help Paul in his needs. Just when he was just down the peninsula in Corinth, he sent money there. When uh, he was in Thessalonica, he, they sent money down to him as well. They supported this brother. There is much here that is instructive for us as well. 
as we look at their gospel fellowship, there's much that we can learn from it. And first and foremost is that the only way that we can have fellowship with one another is that if we first and foremost have fellowship with the triune God. Look at this quote from J.I. Packer. He says, Christian fellowship is two-dimensional, and it has to be vertical before it can be horizontal. We must know the reality of fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, before we can know the reality of fellowship with each other in our common relationship to God. 1 John 1, 3. The person who is not in fellowship with the Father and the Son is no Christian at all, and so cannot share with Christians the realities of their fellowship. It's clear. You cannot be in fellowship, true, deep partnership with fellow believers in Jesus Christ if you are not, first and foremost, in fellowship with God the Father and with His Son. Fellowship, the the model of, of true, deep relationship is modeled by the Trinity. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exists in perfect and holy and deep community. They are the example of love. It is out of their community that we get to share in that love. And so the church as a community, a body of believers, models the community of God to the watching world. How do people know the love that exists within God? Well, they know it because they see it existing between believers in the church. Our fellowship directly displays the fellowship of God. And so as we look at the fellowship of Paul here, we notice that he is very conscious of the people he's serving with, right? He's not like, oh yeah, there's some people out there that are, that are involved in this work, and yeah, I'm thankful for all of you. Thanks for all being involved in this. Now he knows very specifically who is in and who is out. He knows who is on his team, who is with him, who's got his back while he's in house arrest in Rome. I ask us, are we aware of those who are serving with us for the cause of the gospel? Or do we, have, do we have this nebulous idea of who is with us? Are you aware of those who you're serving alongside every week? Are you aware of those whom you're sitting next to every week? Who are with you in the cause of the gospel? Notice also that Paul's thanksgiving is driven by the Philippians' fellowship in the gospel. Is this the way it is here at Foothill? Does the partnership in the gospel that we see every week bring us to thanksgiving? Does it prompt our praise? Are you thankful for those other Awana workers whom you're serving with? Those other nursery workers whom you're serving with? Are you thankful for those other small group members who show up week in and week out to encourage you and to work with you? Are you thankful for those who are in ministry with you? This is a key to our fellowship. Notice that he's also praying for them. Are we praying for those whom we're in partnership with for the gospel? Do we pray for their needs? Do we ask that God would sustain them? Do we thank God for them? But lastly, notice that these verses challenge us about our own involvement in the gospel. Are we truly in? Are we truly fellowshipping in the gospel? Are we truly self-sacrificing for conformity to Christ. Listen, in the church, there's no sidelines. There's no people sitting on the bench. 
This is everybody in all the time serving Christ. And this is the joy and privilege that we have is that we are all on the field all at the same time supporting one another. We are full time for Jesus. There is not Jesus time that is on the weekends and at certain evenings of the week. We are a full time in ministry for the cause of the gospel. This is the way Paul lived. This is the way the Philippians lived. This is how our lives, each one of us who, who attend here, should be about the cause of the gospel. Full time for Jesus. And this is the joy that we receive. The joy that Paul has comes from this full time for Jesus. Listen, the work of ministry and the cause of the gospel is not just for quote-unquote paid professionals, for the pastors. In fact, ironically, Paul says in Ephesians 4 that pastors are there to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. He doesn't say, listen, I've given you pastors to your church so that they can do the work of ministry. He says, no, I've given pastors to your church to equip you to do the work of ministry. That's one of the, the reasons for the training hour, for our small groups, we are looking to equip you to do the work of ministry in each other's lives and in our communities. So I ask you, what is the vision of life that you are conforming your life to? Is it the gospel? Is it career advancement that drives your every waking moment of your day? Is it Trying to accumulate material possessions? Is it, is it trying to soak up all the entertainment that you can? Do you see church as, in this community of saints, as primary in your life, as a primary expression of your walk with Christ? Friends, Christ calls us to give, us, give our all. There's no half-time servants, half-time slaves in the cause of Christ. And so I invite you, I encourage you to get involved in your small group, to show up and to not just show up and say, okay, what do you got for me this week, small group leader? But to show up and begin to pursue people. How are you doing? How's your walk with the Lord? How's, how, was your, how was your week at work? I encourage you that when you get together with other believers, whether it's for lunch, whether it's an evening thing, whether it's just uh, for some other gathering, even if it is to watch a ball game or something, that you don't let your, your conversation to simply sit on the surface. Folks, we have a deep, abiding fellowship in the gospel that should not be absent when we meet together. That should be the top priority, the overflow of who we are. I think this also means that we need to be praying for our missionaries. Listen, Paul was deeply thankful for the prayers of one little church in Philippi. And I can tell you that our missionaries are thankful for one little church in Upland, California, who get on their knees to pray for them. Talk to any of our missionaries personally, and you'll, you'll know what prayer means to them when they're out on the field, on the front lines for the gospel. We are in partnership with them. We are fellowshipping with them. We are conforming our lives to the same gospel that they are doing in and around the world. Let's align our lives here at home as they are aligning their lives overseas. So, we can appreciate the beauty of the gospel fellowship that we have, number one, by being humbled by our shared status, number two, by being thankful for those who are in this shared mission with us. Thirdly, 
We appreciate this fellowship by being assured of our shared sanctification. Our shared sanctification. Now, that's a big, uh, big word that I'll explain in just a moment. Look at verse 6. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure those of you who have been a Christian for some time know how this verse has been a refuge for you. And I'm sure it was that same way for these believers in Philippi. And Paul writes it to encourage them. They no doubt were, were tempted to think like we are. To think that our growing in holiness is completely left up to us. Or to wonder if we're actually growing at all. Or to be discouraged by the sin in our life that we feel like we're not making any progress in following after Christ and that, that we're not making any progress in our fight against sin and we should just give up. No doubt these believers felt that as well. And Paul writes this word to encourage them. He, he reminds them of two sides of the same coin. That primarily God is changing them. He began changing them when they came to Christ and he continues to change them now and he will finally change them when it comes to the day of Christ Jesus. You see, the Spirit never leaves the work half done. What God begins, he always finishes. And so for all of those who God saves, he will sanctify and he will glorify we know this from the golden change of redemption from Romans chapter 8, right? If they are been called and predestined, they are going to be sanctified and saved and glorified. It's a done deal. It is guaranteed. He says that he who began a good work in you, that he can be no one else but God himself. There is no one else that can begin this good work, that can do this heart change, that can give you a heart of flesh instead of your heart of stone. Only God makes spiritually dead people spiritually alive. Only God can resurrect. This change of heart changes their citizenship in heaven. This verse is, was no doubt a deep encouragement to these Philippian believers that God changes sinners. And this process of God changing people is what we call sanctification. Sanctification. And it is related to the word saint, which is uh, holy, right? So sanctification is being made holy. And it describes a process, an incremental, piece-by-piece, step-by-step process of the believer's life becoming more and more conformed in the image of Jesus Christ. This is what happens from the time of conversion to the time of death, is that Christ is conforming us into his image. And it's incremental. We slowly grow more like Christ. We may not see the changes from uh, yesterday, but hopefully we see the changes from a year ago. And we see the changes from five years ago and ten years ago. Listen, we live in a fast age. We want our food fast. We want our computers fast. We want our packages delivered fast, right? Everything is going faster. And if it's too slow, we get frustrated. And no doubt that temptation can creep into our spiritual lives as well. We want our sanctification fast. We want our sin to be defeated fast. God, why am I still battling this? I thought I prayed about this yesterday. 
But this is the process of the Christian life. And this desire for things fast can lead us susceptible to errors. Errors that, that creep in, that tempt you to think, listen, you're missing something in your Christian life. Let me tell you the secret, and this will give you a holy hop. This will, this will na- enable you to leap uh, forward in your sanctification. You'll become, these sins will be instantly taken away in your life in just a moment if you follow these three simple steps. Right? You read those on the back of books at the bookstore all the time. The reason, you know, you're missing out in your Christian life is because you haven't read what I have. And they seem to promise this quick fix. But friends, be reminded that the work of God is slow, but it is a work. Don't lose sight of that fact. Paul is confident of this. He is sure of this. God is working. God is working in you, believer. Be encouraged in that this morning. He's not abandoned you. He's not forgotten about you. He's not leaving you to fend for yourself. He is with you, and he is fighting for you, and he is conforming you to the image of Christ. Be encouraged in that. But remember, this is in the context of fellowship, which means that the people in your small group, the people sitting next to you, the people in this church are also being conformed to the image of Christ, are also being worked on by Jesus. And so the church can be a prime place for frustrations, for toes being stepped on, for feeling the sin of others splash up on us and we get frustrated and angry. But we need to remember first and foremost that those other believers are those who are being changed into the image of Christ. Do you trust Jesus with them? Do you trust that God is actually working in them? Are you encouraged that God is working in those other believers? We need to have the confidence that Paul has that God is working in us and God is working in the people that are sitting side by side us. And so as we are assured of our shared growth and holiness, our shared sanctification, we will learn to appreciate our fellowship with one another even more. Lastly this morning, let's look at the fourth way that we can appreciate this gospel fellowship. The, the fourth way we see in this passage to appreciate gospel fellowship, deeper fellowship together, is to be affectionate because of our shared grace. For us to be affectionate because of our shared grace. We see this in verses 7 and 8. Look at, verses, look at verse 7 with me. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of of Christ Jesus. In these last two verses, we see Paul's deep affection for these people, do we not? He says he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says he feels this way about them because he holds them in his heart. I mean, these are deep emotional terms, some of the the most emotional that we see from the Apostle Paul. And it's all because these people are partakers with him of grace. They're partakers with him of grace. Of grace. He recognized that these people in Philippi shared in the matchless grace of God. They were partakers in this grace. They were sinners, but they had been saved. And you can take this to the bank. No truth 
will overcome divisions among Christians and unite them together than the truth that we are all equally sinners and we are all equally recipients of grace. That is how divisions are dispelled and factions are dissipated, is that we all recognize that before God, we are all sinners deserving of hell and damnation. And yet, because of the sovereign grace of God, because of the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we are all accepted and equally saints, as we mentioned earlier. This was well illustrated back in 1966 at the World Congress of Evangelism, a time in which people from all over the world gathered together to uh, talk about what God is doing around the world. They came from every, just about every continent on the globe, almost every country. There was a man there who was a native of Central Africa, and he stood out very much, especially from his Western uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. He, uh, his face was marked by heavy cuts and tattoos from his tribal days of pagan religion. He only spoke French and his tribal language. But one night, two Alka Indians, those who had been involved in the killing of Jim Elliott and his four other missionaries, friends in Ecuador were present that night to give their testimony. Many of you no doubt know that story. And so as these Indians were sharing their story, they were talking about how they lived in darkness. They lived in paganism. They followed the superstition of their tribes. And that led them to kill these missionaries. But then they also told of how God had saved them of how God had broke into their darkness and they had turned to follow after Jesus Christ and that they were now sons and daughters of God and they had left their superstition behind. This man from Central Africa who lived 4,000 miles away, who did not speak their language, only heard their story through an interpreter, jumps up and in front of a, over 1,000 people, runs down and with tears streaming down his face, embraces these two Alka Indians. Because what he recognized was that these two men who looked so different and spoke so different from him had, were partakers in the same grace that he partook in. The same grace that had opened his eyes was the grace that had opened these men's eyes. And he felt a closeness, a bond, a fellowship that, trans, that crossed over oceans, that crossed over language barriers, that crossed over cultural barriers. Folks, this is the uniting grace of God. This is what God does to people. He brings us together through his grace. And this is what Foothill Bible Church is to be to the watching world, a place in which people of all shapes and sizes, of all cultural backgrounds, of all social and economic statuses, men and women, adults and children come together and recognize that they are partakers in the grace of God, that we are on a mission to bring the gospel to this lost and dying world, and that we are all in this together. And what a testimony this will show to a lost and dying world who does not know community, who does not know hope after this life. We display the gospel as we live in this close, self-sacrificial community together. Friends, let's let this grace draw us together this morning. Have your eyes be open to these people that you've seen around on Sunday or you see on small group, but recognize that they are fellow saints with you, 
fellow citizens of heaven, fellow partakers of grace, and let that warm your heart as it warmed Paul's heart. And may we have the affection for one another as the affection of Christ Jesus. Let me close by just asking you a couple questions. Have you ever experienced this gospel fellowship? Have you experienced the joy, the beauty of close brother and sister friendship in the body of Christ? If not, it could be because you yourself are still on the outside. You are still trying to control your own life. You are still trying to call the shots for how you want to live. On the authority of the Word of God, I call you this morning to stop fighting, to submit to your Creator, to look at the gift that He's given you in His Son, Jesus Christ, and to repent of your sins, to leave your way of life behind, to leave the control of your life and turn and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. The moment you do that is the moment that you are a saint. And the moment that you have eternal life, a hope beyond this as a citizen of heaven. For those of you who have maybe attended here for a while, who have been a part of this congregation, or maybe you're just beginning to attend, can I invite all of us to roll up our sleeves and to get involved in the work of the gospel? Again, this is not the work of a few. This is the work of all followers of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission was given to all the disciples of Jesus to go into all the nation and make disciples of Jesus Christ. Full time for Jesus. When you're at your job, when you're at home, when you're talking to your neighbors, when you're in the car with your kids, this is all about glorifying Christ. It's all about the progress of the gospel. Let's join in this together. Let's encourage one another and let's Realize that we're side by side in the same shared vision for the glory of Christ on this globe. And let's see what God will do in and through us, the slaves, the saints, the weak, the frail, but the saved. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, as we contemplate the fellowship that we have with one another, we are drawn directly back up to you and recognize that any fellowship that we have here is a direct result of the fellowship that exists in heaven. Father, thank you that you are a loving God, that you are a God who exists in unity and fellowship, that love is exuding out of you and that we can partake in that. I pray for us here at Foothill that you would continue to strengthen us, causing us to be a community who doesn't settle for surface social relationships, but who goes deep, recognizing our, our cause of the gospel that we are giving our lives to. Father, would you work that in each one of us? Would you rem- show each one of us where we need to repent of the ways in which we are still trying to cling to what we want rather than surrendering to your agenda? We recognize that we stand before you as sinners, but save sinners. I pray as we launch into this ministry year, starting here in the fall, that you would equip us 
to have a deep fellowship and a deep commitment to the gospel. We pray this for your glory's sake. It's in your son's name alone we pray. Amen.